Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, Behind the Story, where we answer the questions you have about your favorite classic authors. What inspired your favorite author to write their novels? What was going on in the world at the time? Follow along with us as we tell you what was happening in the world while your favorite authors wrote your favorite classics. My name is Bree Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us so you get all the new episodes. If you want to see exclusive behind-the-scenes of our show, join our Patreon. We would also love for you to drop us a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share our show with your friends. You can catch us on all the social medias at Bite at a Time Books. Our show is part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you would also like to hear a story by the author we are currently featuring, check out the Bite at a Time Books podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Right now we are reading Jane Eyre. Today we will be talking about the next two kings that reigned while Charlotte Bronte was alive, George IV and William IV. George IV, George Augustus Frederick, August 12, 1762 to June 26, 1830, was King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and King of Hanover from the death of his father, King George III, on January 29, 1820, until his own death ten years later. He had already been serving as Prince Regent since February 5, 1811, during his father's final mental illness. George IV was the eldest child of King George III and Queen Charlotte. He led an extravagant lifestyle that contributed to the fashions of the Regency era. He was a patron of new forms of leisure, style, and taste. He commissioned John Nash to build the Royal Pavilion in Brighton and remodel Buckingham Palace, and commissioned Geoffrey Wyattville to rebuild Windsor Castle. George's charm and culture earned him the title The First Gentleman of England but his dissolute way of life and poor relationships with his parents and his wife, Caroline of Brunswick, earned him the contempt of the people and dimmed the prestige of the monarchy. He excluded Caroline from his coronation and asked the government to introduce the unpopular Pains and Penalties Bill in an unsuccessful attempt to divorce her. Despite presiding over the British Empire's emergence as a global hegemon, his rule was tarnished by scandal and financial extravagance. His ministers found his behavior selfish, unreliable, and irresponsible, and he was strongly influenced by favorites. Taxpayers were angry at his wasteful spending during the Napoleonic Wars. During most of George's regency and reign, Lord Liverpool controlled the government as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Liverpool's government presided over Britain's ultimate victory over Napoleon and negotiated a peace settlement with the French. After Liverpool's retirement, George IV was forced to accept Catholic emancipation, despite opposing it. His only legitimate child, Princess Charlotte, predeceased him in 1817, so he was succeeded by his younger brother, King William IV. George was born at St. James's Palace, London, on August 12, 1762, the first child of the British King George III and Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. As the eldest son of a British sovereign, he automatically became Duke of Cornwall and Duke of Rothesay at birth. He was created Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester a few days later. On September 18th of the same year, he was baptized by Thomas Secker, Archbishop of Canterbury. 
His godparents were his uncle Adolphus Frederick IV, Duke of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, for whom the Lord Chamberlain, William Cavendish, 4th Duke of Devonshire, stood proxy, his paternal great-uncle Prince William, Duke of Cumberland, and his grandmother, the Dowager Princess of Wales. George was a talented student and quickly learned to speak French, German, and Italian, in addition to his native English. At the age of 18, the Prince of Wales was given a separate establishment, and in dramatic contrast to his prosaic, scandal-free father, threw himself with zest into a life of dissipation and wild extravagance, involving heavy drinking and numerous mistresses and escapades. He was a witty conversationalist, drunk or sober, and showed good but grossly expensive taste in decorating his palace. The Prince of Wales turned 21 in 1783 and obtained a grant of £60,000, equivalent to £7,385,000 today from Parliament, and an annual income of £50,000, equivalent to £6,154,000 today from his father. It was far too little for his wants. His stables alone cost £31,000 a year. He then established his residence in Carlton House, where he lived a profligate life. Animosity developed between the prince and his father, who desired more frugal behavior on the part of the heir apparent. The king, a political conservative, was also alienated by the prince's adherence to Charles James Fox and other radically inclined politicians. Soon after he reached the age of 21, the prince became infatuated with Maria Fitzherbert. She was a commoner, though granddaughter of a baronet, six years his elder, twice widowed and a Roman Catholic. Nevertheless, the prince was determined to marry her. This was in spite of the Act of Settlement 1701, which barred the spouse of a Catholic from succeeding to the throne, and the Royal Marriages Act 1772, which prohibited his marriage without the king's consent. Nevertheless, the couple went through a marriage ceremony on December 15, 1785, at her house in Park Street, Mayfair. Legally, the union was void as the king's consent was not granted and never even requested. However, Fitzherbert believed that she was the prince's canonical and true wife, holding the law of the church to be superior to the law of the state. For political reasons, the union remained secret and Fitzherbert promised not to reveal it. The prince was plunged into debt by his exorbitant lifestyle. His father refused to assist him, forcing him to quit Carlton House and live at Fitzherbert's residence. In 1787, the prince's political allies proposed to relieve his debts with a parliamentary grant. The prince's relationship with Fitzherbert was suspected, and revelation of the illegal marriage would have scandalized the nation and doomed any parliamentary proposal to aid him. Acting on the prince's authority, the Whig leader, Charles James Fox, declared that the story was a calumny. Fitzherbert was not pleased with the public denial of the marriage in such vehement terms and contemplated severing her ties to the prince. He appeased her by asking another Whig, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, to restate Fox's forceful declaration in more careful words. Parliament, meanwhile, granted the prince £161,000, equivalent to £20,916,000 today, to pay his debts, and £60,000, equivalent to £7,795,000 today, for improvements to Carlton House. In the summer of 1788, the king's mental health deteriorated, possibly as the result of the hereditary disease porphyria. 
He was nonetheless able to discharge some of his duties and to declare Parliament prorogued from September 25th to November 20th. During the prorogation, he became deranged, posing a threat to his own life. And when Parliament reconvened in November, the king could not deliver the customary speech from the throne during the state opening of Parliament. Parliament found itself in an untenable position. According to long-established law, it could not proceed to any business until the delivery of the king's speech at a state opening. Although arguably barred from doing so, Parliament began debating a regency. In the House of Commons, Charles James Fox declared his opinion that the Prince of Wales was automatically entitled to exercise sovereignty during the king's incapacity. A contrasting opinion was held by the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, who argued that, in the absence of a statute to the contrary, the right to choose a regent belonged to Parliament alone. He even stated that, without parliamentary authority, the Prince of Wales had no more right to assume the government than any other individual subject of the country. Though disagreeing on the principle underlying a regency, Pitt agreed with Fox that the Prince of Wales would be the most convenient choice for a regent. The Prince of Wales, though offended by Pitt's boldness, did not lend his full support to Fox's approach. The Prince of Wales's brother, Prince Frederick, Duke of York and Albany, declared that George would not attempt to exercise any power without previously obtaining the consent of Parliament. Following the passage of preliminary resolutions, Pitt outlined a formal plan for the regency, suggesting that the powers of the Prince of Wales be greatly limited. Among other things, the Prince of Wales would not be able either to sell the king's property or to grant a peerage to anyone other than a child of the king. The Prince of Wales denounced Pitt's scheme, declaring it a project for producing weakness, disorder, and insecurity in every branch of the administration of affairs. In the interests of the nation, both factions agreed to compromise. A significant technical impediment to any regency bill involved the lack of a speech from the throne, which was necessary before Parliament could proceed to any debates or votes. The speech was normally delivered by the king, but could also be delivered by royal representatives known as Lord's Commissioners, but no document could empower the Lord's Commissioners to act unless the Great Seal of the Realm was affixed to it. The seal could not be legally affixed without the prior authorization of the sovereign. Pitt and his fellow ministers ignored the last requirement and instructed the Lord Chancellor to affix the Great Seal without the King's consent, as the act of affixing the Great Seal in itself gave legal force to the bill. The legal fiction was denounced by Edmund Burke as forgery, fraud, a glaring falsehood, and as a palpable absurdity. The Duke of York and Albany described the plan as unconstitutional and illegal. Nevertheless, others in Parliament felt that such a scheme was necessary to preserve an effective government. Consequently, on February 3, 1789, more than two months after it had convened, Parliament was formally opened by an illegal group of Lords Commissioners. The Regency Bill was introduced, but before it could be passed, the King recovered. The King declared retroactively that the instrument authorizing the Lords Commissioners to act was valid. The Prince of Wales' debts continued to climb, and his father refused to aid him unless he married his cousin, Princess Caroline of Brunswick. In 1795, the prince acquiesced, and they were married on April 8, 1795, at the Chapel Royale, St. James Place. The marriage, however, was disastrous. 
Each party was unsuited to the other. The two were formally separated after the birth of their only child, Princess Charlotte, in 1796, and remained separated thereafter. The prince remained attached to Maria Fitzherbert for the rest of his life, despite several periods of estrangement. George's mistresses included Mary Robinson, an actress whom he paid to leave the stage, Grace Elliott, the divorced wife of a physician, and Frances Villiers, Countess of Jersey, who dominated his life for some years. In later life, George's mistresses were the Marchioness of Hertford and the Marchioness Cunningham. George was rumored to have fathered several illegitimate children. James Ord, born 1786, who moved to the United States and became a Jesuit priest, was reportedly his son by Fitzherbert. Late in life, George told a friend that he had a son who was a naval officer in the West Indies, whose identity has been tentatively established as Captain Henry A.F. Hervey, 1786 to 1824, reportedly George's child by the songwriter Lady Anne Lindsay, later Barnard, a daughter of James Lindsay, 5th Earl of Barcaress. Other reported children include Major George Seymour Kroll, the son of theater manager's daughter Eliza Kroll, William Hampshire, the son of a publican's daughter Sarah Brown, and Charles Beau Candy, the son of a Frenchwoman with that surname. Anthony Camp, director of research at the Society of Genealogists, has dismissed the claims that George IV was the father of Ord, Hervey, Hampshire, and Candy as fictitious. The problem of the Prince of Wales' debts, which amounted to the extraordinary sum of £630,000 in 1795, equivalent to £66,544,000 today, was solved, at least temporarily, by Parliament. Being unwilling to make an outright grant to relieve these debts, it provided him an additional sum of £65,000, equivalent to £6,866,000 today, per annum. In 1803, a further £60,000, equivalent to £5,602,000 today, was added. And George's debts, as at 1785, were finally cleared in 1806, although the debts he had incurred since 1795 remained. In 1804, a dispute arose over the custody of Princess Charlotte, which led to her being placed in the care of the king. It also led to a parliamentary commission of inquiry into Princess Caroline's conduct after the Prince of Wales accused her of having an illegitimate son. The investigation cleared Caroline of the charge, but still revealed her behavior to have been extraordinarily indiscreet. In late 1810, the king's mental health once again broke down following the death of his youngest daughter, Princess Amelia. Parliament agreed to follow the precedent of 1788 without the king's consent. The Lord Chancellor affixed the Great Seal of the Realm to letters patent, naming Lord's Commissioners. The letters patent lacked the royal sign manual, but were sealed by request of resolutions passed by both houses of parliament. The Lord's commissioners appointed by the letters patent in the name of the king then signified the granting of royal assent to a bill that became the Regency Act 1811. Parliament restricted some of the powers of the Prince Regent, as the Prince of Wales became known. The constraints expired one year after the passage of the Act. The Prince of Wales became Prince Regent on February 5, 1811. The Regent let his ministers take full charge of government affairs, playing a far smaller role than his father. 
The principle that the prime minister was the person supported by a majority in the House of Commons, whether the king personally favored him or not, became established. His governments, with little help from the regent, presided over British policy. One of the most important political conflicts facing the country concerned Catholic emancipation, the movement to relieve Roman Catholics of various political disabilities. The Tories, led by Prime Minister Spencer Percival, were opposed to Catholic emancipation, while the Whigs supported it. At the beginning of the Regency, the Prince of Wales was expected to support the Whig leader, Lord Greenville. He did not, however, immediately put Greenville and the Whigs into office. Influenced by his mother, he claimed that a sudden dismissal of the Tory government would exact too great a toll on the health of the king, a steadfast supporter of the Tories, thereby eliminating any chance of a recovery. In 1812, when it appeared highly unlikely that the king would recover, the Prince of Wales again failed to appoint a new Whig administration. Instead, he asked the Whigs to join the existing ministry under Percival. The Whigs, however, refused to cooperate because of disagreements over Catholic emancipation. Grudgingly, the Prince of Wales allowed Percival to continue as prime minister. On May 11, 1812, Percival was assassinated by John Bellingham. The Prince Regent was prepared to reappoint all the members of the Percival ministry under a new leader. The House of Commons formerly declared its desire for a strong and efficient administration, so the Prince Regent then offered leadership of the government to Lord Wellesley and afterwards to Lord Mora. He doomed the attempts of both to failure, however, by forcing each to construct an all-party ministry at a time when neither party wished to share power with the other. Possibly using the failure of the two peers as a pretext, the Prince Regent immediately reappointed the Percival administration with Lord Liverpool as Prime Minister. The Tories, unlike Whigs such as Earl Grey, sought to continue the vigorous prosecution of the war in continental Europe against the powerful and aggressive Emperor of the French, Napoleon I. An anti-French alliance which included Russia, Prussia, Austria, Britain, and several smaller countries defeated Napoleon in 1814. In the subsequent Congress of Vienna, it was decided that the electorate of Hanover, a state that had shared a monarch with Britain since 1714, would be raised to the Kingdom of Hanover. Napoleon returned from exile in 1815, but was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo by the Duke of Wellington, brother of Lord Wellesley. During this period, George took an active interest in matters of style and taste, and his associates, such as the dandy Beau Brummel and the architect John Nash, created the Regency style. In London, Nash designed the Regency terraces of Regent's Park and Regent Street. George took up the new idea of the seaside spa and had the Brighton Pavilion developed as a fantastical seaside palace, adapted by Nash in the Indian Gothic style, inspired loosely by the Taj Mahal, with extravagant Indian and Chinese interiors. When George III died in 1820, the Prince Regent, then aged 57, ascended the throne as George IV with no real change in his powers. By the time of his accession, he was obese and possibly addicted to laudanum. George IV's relationship with his wife Caroline had deteriorated by the time of his accession. They had lived separately since 1796 and both were having affairs. In 1814, Caroline left the United Kingdom for continental Europe, but she chose to return for her husband's coronation and to publicly assert her rights as queen consort. 
However, he refused to recognize Caroline as queen and commanded British ambassadors to ensure that monarchs in foreign courts did the same. By royal command, Caroline's name was omitted from the Book of Common Prayer, the liturgy of the Church of England. The king sought a divorce, but his advisor suggested that any divorce proceedings might involve the publication of details relating to the king's own adulterous relationships. Therefore, he requested and ensured the introduction of the Pains and Penalties Bill, under which Parliament could have imposed legal penalties without a trial in a court of law. The bill would have annulled the marriage and stripped Caroline of the title of queen. The bill proved extremely unpopular with the public and was withdrawn from Parliament. George decided, nonetheless, to exclude his wife from his coronation at Westminster Abbey on July 19, 1821. Caroline fell ill that day and died on August 7. During her final illness, she often stated that she thought she had been poisoned. George's coronation was a magnificent and expensive affair, costing about £243,000, approximately £22,639,000 in 2022. For comparison, his father's coronation had only cost about £10,000. Despite the enormous cost, it was a popular event. In 1821, the king became the first monarch to pay a state visit to Ireland, since Richard II of England. The following year, he visited Edinburgh for one and twenty daft days. His visit to Scotland, organized by Sir Walter Scott, was the first by a reigning monarch since the mid-17th century. George spent most of his later reign in seclusion at Windsor Castle, but he continued to intervene in politics. At first, it was believed that he would support Catholic emancipation, as he had proposed a Catholic emancipation bill for Ireland in 1797. But his anti-Catholic views became clear in 1813, when he privately canvassed against the ultimately defeated Catholic Relief Bill of 1813. By 1824, he was denouncing Catholic emancipation in public. Having taken the coronation oath on his accession, George now argued that he had sworn to uphold the Protestant faith and could not support any pro-Catholic measures. The influence of the crown was so great and the will of the Tories under Prime Minister Liverpool so strong that Catholic emancipation seemed hopeless. In 1827, however, Liverpool retired to be replaced by the pro-emancipation Tory George Canning. When Canning entered office, the king, hitherto content with privately instructing his ministers on the Catholic question, thought it fit to make a public declaration to the effect that his sentiments on the question were those of his revered father, George III. Canning's view on the Catholic question were not well received by the most conservative Tories, including the Duke of Wellington. As a result, the ministry was forced to include Whigs. Canning died later in that year, leaving Lord Goderich to lead the tenuous Tory-Whig coalition. Goderich left office in 1828 to be succeeded by Wellington, who had by that time accepted that the denial of some measure of relief to Roman Catholics was politically untenable. George was never as friendly with Wellington as he had been with Canning, and chose to annoy the Duke by pretending to have fought at Waterloo disguised as a German general. With great difficulty, Wellington obtained the king's consent to the introduction of a Catholic relief bill on January 29, 1829. Under pressure from his fanatically anti-Catholic brother, the Duke of Cumberland, the king withdrew his approval, and in protest the cabinet resigned en masse on March 4th. 
The next day, the king, now under intense political pressure, reluctantly agreed to the bill and ministry remained in power. Royal assent was finally granted to the Catholic Relief Act on April 13th. George's heavy drinking and indulgent lifestyle had taken their toll on his health by the late 1820s. While still Prince of Wales, he had become obese through his huge banquets and copious consumption of alcohol, making him the target of ridicule on the rare occasions that he appeared in public. By 1797, his weight had reached 17 stone 7 pounds, 245 pounds. By 1824, his corset was made for a waist of 50 inches. He suffered from gout, arteriosclerosis, peripheral edema, dropsy, and possibly porphyria. In his last years, he spent whole days in bed and suffered spasms of breathlessness that would leave him half-asphyxiated. George's last years were marked by increasing physical and mental decay and withdrawal from public affairs. Privately, a senior aide to the king confided to his diary, A more contemptible, cowardly, selfish, unfeeling dog does not exist. There have been good and wise kings, but not many of them, and this I believe to be one of the worst. By December 1828, like his father, George was almost completely blind from cataracts and was suffering from such severe gout in his right hand and arm that he could no longer sign documents. In mid-1829, Sir David Wilkie reported the king was wasting away frightfully day after day and had become so obese that he looked like a great sausage stuffed into the covering. The king took laudanum to counteract severe bladder pains, which left him in a drugged and mentally handicapped state for days on end. He underwent surgery to remove a cataract in September 1829, by which time he was regularly taking over 100 drops of laudanum before state occasions. By the spring of 1830, George's imminent end was apparent. Now largely confined to his bedchambers, having completely lost sight in one eye, and describing himself as blind as a beetle, he was forced to approve legislation with a stamp of his signature in the presence of witnesses. His weight was recorded to be 20 stone, 280 pounds. Attacks of breathlessness due to dropsy forced him to sleep upright in a chair, and doctors frequently tapped his abdomen in order to drain excess fluid. Despite his obvious decline, George was admired for clinging doggedly to life. His will to live and still prodigious appetite astonished observers. In April 1830, the Duke of Wellington wrote that the king had consumed for breakfast a pigeon and beef steak pie, three parts of a bottle of Moselle, a glass of dry champagne, two glasses of port, and a glass of brandy, followed by a large dose of laudanum. Writing to Marie Fitzherbert in June, the king's doctor, Sir Henry Halford, noted, His majesty's constitution is a gigantic one, and his elasticity under the most severe pressure exceeds what I have ever witnessed in 38 years' experience. Though George had been under Halford's care since the time of the regency, the doctor's social ambitions and perceived lack of competence were strongly criticized, the Lancet labeling Halford's bulletins on the king's health as utterly and entirely destitute of information. Subsequently, characterizing Haltford's treatment of George, which involved administering both opium and laudanum as sedatives as appearing to lack sense or direction. George dictated his will in May and became very devout in his final months, confessing to an archdeacon that he repented of his dissolute life, but hoped mercy would be shown to him as he had always tried to do the best for his subjects. By June, he was unable to lie down and received the sacrament on June 14th in the presence of Lady Cunningham, 
Halford, and a clergyman. While Halford only informed the cabinet on June 24th that the king's cough continues with considerable expectoration, he privately told his wife that things are coming to a conclusion. I shall be released about Monday. At about three in the morning of June 26, 1830 at Windsor Castle, George awoke and passed a bowel movement, a large evacuation mixed with blood. He then sent for Halford, allegedly calling to his servants, Sir Henry, Sir Henry, fetch him, this is death. Accounts of George's final moments and last words vary. According to Halford, following his arrival and that of Sir William Nankton, the king's lips grew livid and he dropped his head on the page's shoulder. I was up the stairs in five minutes and he died but eight minutes afterwards. Other accounts state the king placed his hands on his stomach and said, surely this must be death. Or that he called out, good God, what is this? Clasped his page's hand and said, my boy, this is death. George died at 3.15 a.m. An autopsy conducted by his physicians revealed George had died from upper gastrointestinal bleeding resulting from the rupture of a blood vessel in his stomach. A large tumor the size of an orange was found attached to his bladder. His heart was enlarged, had heavily calcified valves, and was surrounded by a large fat deposit. The king was buried in St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, on July 15th. George's only legitimate child, Charlotte, had died from postpartum complications in 1817 after delivering a stillborn son. George III's second son, Prince Frederick, Duke of York and Albany, had died childless in 1827, so the throne passed to the third son of George III, Prince William, Duke of Clarence, who reigned as William IV. George was described as the first gentleman of England on account of his style and manners. He was bright, clever, and knowledgeable, but his laziness and gluttony led him to squander much of his talent. The Times wrote that he would always prefer a girl and a bottle to politics and a sermon. The Regency period saw a shift in fashion that was largely determined by George. After political opponents put a tax on wig powder, he abandoned wearing a powdered wig in favor of natural hair. He wore darker colors that had been previously fashionable as they helped to disguise his size, favored pantaloons and trousers over knee breeches because they were looser, and popularized a high collar with neckcloth because it hid his double chin. His visit to Scotland in 1822 led to the revival, if not the creation, of Scottish tartan dress as it is known today. During the political crisis caused by Catholic emancipation, the Duke of Wellington said that George was the worst man he ever fell in with his whole life, the most selfish, the most false, the most ill-natured, the most entirely without one redeeming quality. However, his eulogy delivered in the House of Lords called George the most accomplished man of his age and praised his knowledge and talent. Wellington's true feelings were probably somewhere between these two extremes. As he said later, George was a magnificent patron of the arts, the most extraordinary compound of talent, wit, buffoonery, obstinacy, and good feeling. In short, a medley of the most opposite qualities with a great preponderance of good that I ever saw in any character in my life. Upon George's death, the Times captured elite opinion succinctly. There never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. What eye has wept for him? What heart has heaved one throb of unmercenary sorrow? If he ever had a friend, a devoted friend in any rank of life, we protest that the name of him or her never reached us. There are many statues of George IV, a large number of which were erected during his reign. 
In the United Kingdom, they include a bronze statue of him on horseback by Sir Francis Chantry in Trafalgar Square. In Edinburgh, George IV Bridge is a main street linking the Old Town High Street to the north over the ravine of the Cowgate, designed by the architect Thomas Hamilton in 1829 and completed in 1835. King's Cross, now a major transport hub sitting on the border of Camden and Islington in North London, takes its name from a short-lived monument erected to George IV in the early 1830s. A square and a neighboring park in St. Luke's, Islington, is also named after George IV. William IV William Henry, August 21, 1765 to June 20, 1837, was King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and King of Hanover from June 26, 1830 until his death in 1837. The third son of George III, William succeeded his elder brother George IV, becoming the last king and penultimate monarch of Britain's House of Hanover. William served in the Royal Navy in his youth, spending time in North America and the Caribbean, and was later nicknamed the Sailor King. In 1789, he was created Duke of Clarence in St. Andrews. In 1827, he was appointed as Britain's first Lord High Admiral since 1709. As his two older brothers died without leaving legitimate issue, he inherited the throne when he was 64 years old. His reign saw several reforms. The poor law was updated child labor restricted, slavery abolished in nearly all of the British Empire, and the British electoral system refashioned by the Reform Act 1832. Although William did not engage in politics as much as his brother or his father, he was the last British monarch to appoint a prime minister contrary to the will of Parliament. He granted his German kingdom a short-lived liberal constitution. At the time of his death, William had no surviving legitimate children, but he was survived by eight of the ten illegitimate children he had by the actress Dorothea Jordan, with whom he cohabitated for 20 years. Late in life, he married and apparently remained faithful to Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meningen. William was succeeded by his niece Victoria in the United Kingdom and his brother Ernest Augustus in Hanover. William was born in the early hours of the morning on August 21, 1765, at Buckingham House, the third child and son of King George III and Queen Charlotte. He had two elder brothers, George, Prince of Wales, and Prince Frederick, later Duke of York, and was not expected to inherit the crown. He was baptized in the Great Council Chamber of St. James Place on September 20, 1765, his godparents were the king's siblings, Prince William Henry, Duke of Gloucester and Edinburgh, Prince Henry, later Duke of Cumberland, and Princess Augusta, hereditary Duchess of Brunswick Wolfelbuttle. William spent most of his early life in Richmond and at Kew Palace, where he was educated by private tutors. At the age of 13, he joined the Royal Navy as a midshipman and was present at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1780. His experiences in the Navy seem to have been little different from those of other midshipmen, though in contrast to other sailors, he was accompanied on board ship by a tutor. He did his share of the cooking and got arrested with his shipmates after a drunken brawl in Gibraltar. He was hastily released from custody after his identity became known. William served in New York during the American War of Independence, making him the only member of the British royal family to visit America up to and through the American Revolution. While William was in America, George Washington approved a plot to kidnap him, writing, 
The spirit of enterprise so conspicuous in your plan for surprising in their quarters and bringing off the Prince William Henry and Admiral Digby merits applause, and you have my authority to make the attempt in any manner and at such a time as your judgment may direct. I am fully persuaded that it is unnecessary to caution you against offering insult or indignity to the persons of the prince or admiral. The plot did not come to fruition. The British heard of it and assigned guards to William, who had until then walked around New York unescorted. In September 1781, William held court at the Manhattan home of Governor Robertson. In attendance were Mayor David Matthews, Admiral Digby, and General Delancey. William became a lieutenant in 1785 and captain of HMS Pegasus the following year. In late 1786, he was stationed in the West Indies under Horatio Nelson, who wrote of William, In his professional line, he is superior to two-thirds, I am sure, of the naval list. And in attention to orders and respect to his superior officer, I hardly know his equal. The two were great friends and dined together almost nightly. At Nelson's wedding, William insisted on giving the bride away. He was given command of the frigate HMS Andromeda in 1788 and was promoted to rear admiral while commanding HMS Valiant the following year. William sought to be made a duke like his elder brothers and to receive a similar parliamentary grant, but his father was reluctant. To put pressure on him, William threatened to stand for the British House of Commons for the constituency of Tones in Devon. Appalled at the prospect of his son making his case to the voters, George III created him Duke of Clarence in St. Andrews and Earl of Munster on May 16, 1789, supposedly saying, I well know it is another vote added to the opposition. William's political record was inconsistent, and, like many politicians of the time, cannot be ascribed to a single party. However, he allied himself publicly with the Whigs, as did his elder brothers who were known to be in conflict with the political positions of their father. William ceased his active service in the Royal Navy in 1790. When Britain declared war on France in 1793, he was eager to serve his country and expected to be given a command, but was not. Perhaps at first because he had broken his arm by falling down some stairs drunk, but later perhaps because he gave a speech in the House of Lords opposing the war. The following year, he spoke in favor of the war and expected a command after his change of heart. None came. The admiralty did not reply to his request. He did not lose hope of being appointed to an active post. In 1798, he was made an admiral, but the rank was purely nominal. Despite repeated petitions, he was never given a command throughout the Napoleonic Wars. In 1811, he was appointed to the honorary position of Admiral of the Fleet. In 1813, he came nearest to involvement in actual fighting when he visited the British troops fighting in the Low Countries. Watching the bombardment of Antwerp from a church steeple, he came under fire and a bullet pierced his coat. Instead of serving at sea, William spent time in the House of Lords where he spoke in opposition to the abolition of slavery, which still existed in the British colonies. Freedom would do the slaves little good, he argued. He traveled widely and, in his eyes, the living standard among freemen in the highlands and islands of Scotland was worse than that among slaves in the West Indies. His experience in the Caribbean, where he quickly absorbed the plantation owner's views about slavery, lent weight to his position, which was perceived as well argued and just by some of his contemporaries. In his first speech before Parliament, he called himself an attentive observer of the state of the Negroes, who found them well cared for and in a state of humble happiness. 
Others thought it shocking that so young a man under no bias of interest should be earnest in continuance of the slave trade. In his speech to the House, William insulted William Wilberforce, the leading abolitionist, saying, The proponents of the abolition are either fanatics or hypocrites, and in one of those classes, I rank Mr. Wilberforce. On other issues, he was more liberal, such as supporting moves to abolish penal laws against dissenting Christians. He also opposed efforts to bar those found guilty of adultery from remarriage. From 1791, William lived with an Irish actress, Dorothea Bland, better known by her stage name, Mrs. Jordan, the title Mrs. being assumed at the start of her stage career to explain an inconvenient pregnancy, and Jordan because she had crossed the water from Ireland to Britain. He appeared to enjoy the domesticacy of his life with Mrs. Jordan, remarking to a friend, Mrs. Jordan is a very good creature, very domestic and careful of her children. To be sure, she is absurd sometimes and has her humors, but there are such things more or less in all families. The couple, while living quietly, enjoyed entertaining, with Mrs. Jordan writing in late 1809, We shall have a full and merry house this Christmas. Tis what the dear Duke delights in. George III was accepting of his son's relationship with the actress, though recommending that he have her allowance. In 1797, he created William the Ranger of Bushy Park, which included a large residence, Bushy House for William's growing family. William used Bushy as his principal residence until he became king. His London residence, Clarence House, was constructed to the designs of John Nash between 1825 and 1827. The couple had ten illegitimate children, five sons and five daughters, nine of whom were named after William's siblings. Each was given the surname Fitzclarence. Their affair lasted for 20 years before ending in 1811. Mrs. Jordan had no doubt as to the reason for the breakup. Money, money, my good friend has, I am convinced, made him at this moment the most wretched of men. Adding, with all his excellent qualities, his domestic virtues, his love for his lovely children, what must he not at this moment suffer? She was given a financial settlement of 4,400 pounds, equivalent to 326,400 in 2020, per year and custody of her daughters on condition that she did not resume the stage. When she resumed acting in an effort to repay debts incurred by the husband of one of her daughters from a previous relationship, William took custody of the daughters and stopped paying the 1,500 pounds equivalent to 107,300 pounds in 2020, designated for their maintenance. After Mrs. Jordan's acting career began to fail, she fled to France to escape her creditors and died, impoverished, near Paris in 1816. Before he met Mrs. Jordan, William had an illegitimate son whose mother is unknown. The son, also called William, drowned off Madagascar in HMS Blenheim in February 1807. Caroline von Linsingen, whose father was a general in the Hanoverian Infantry, claimed to have a son, Henrik, by William in around 1790. But William was not in Hanover at the time that she claims, and the story is considered implausible by historians. Deeply in debt, William made multiple attempts at marrying a wealthy heiress such as Catherine Tinley Long, but his suits were unsuccessful. Following the death of William's niece, Princess Charlotte of Wales, then second in line to the British throne, in 1817, George III was left with 12 children, but no legitimate grandchildren. The race was on among his sons, the royal dukes, to marry and produce an heir. 
William had great advantages in his race. His two older brothers were both childless and estranged from their wives, who were both beyond childbearing age anyway, and William was the healthiest of the three. If he lived long enough, he would almost certainly ascend the British and Hanoverian thrones and have the opportunity to sire the next monarch. William's initial choices of potential wives either met with the disapproval of his eldest brother, the Prince of Wales, or turned him down. His younger brother, Prince Adolphus, Duke of Cambridge, was sent to Germany to scout out the available Protestant princesses. He came up with Princess Augusta of Hesse Castle, but her father Frederick declined the match. Two months later, the Duke of Cambridge married Augusta himself. Eventually, a princess was found who was amiable, home-loving, and was willing to accept, even enthusiastically, welcoming William's nine surviving children, several of whom had not yet reached adulthood. In the drawing room at Kew Palace on July 11, 1818, William married Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meningen. William's marriage, which lasted almost 20 years until his death, was a happy one. Adelaide took both William and his finances in hand. For their first year of marriage, the couple lived in economical fashion in Germany. William's debts were soon on the way to being paid, especially since Parliament had voted him an increased allowance, which he reluctantly accepted after his requests to have it increased further were refused. William is not known to have had mistresses after his marriage. The couple had two short-lived daughters, and Adelaide suffered three miscarriages. Despite this, false rumors that she was pregnant persisted into William's reign. He dismissed them as damned stuff. William's elder brother, the Prince of Wales, had been Prince Regent since 1811 because of the mental illness of their father. In 1820, George III died and the Prince Regent became George IV. William, Duke of Clarence, was now second in the line of succession, preceded only by his brother Frederick, Duke of York. Reformed since his marriage, William walked for hours, ate relatively frugally, and the only drink he imbibed in quantity was barley water, flavored with lemon. Both of his older brothers were unhealthy, and it was considered only a matter of time before he became king. When Frederick died in 1827, William, then more than 60 years old, became heir presumptive. Later that year, the incoming Prime Minister, George Canning, appointed him to the office of Lord High Admiral, which had been in commission, that is, exercised by a board rather than by a single individual, since 1709. While in office, William had repeated conflicts with his council, which was composed of admiralty officers. Things finally came to a head in 1828 when, as Lord High Admiral, he put to sea with a squadron of ships, leaving no word of where they were going and remaining away for ten days. The king requested his resignation through the prime minister, the Duke of Wellington. He complied. Despite the difficulties William experienced, he did considerable good as Lord High Admiral. He abolished the cat and nine tails for most offenses other than mutiny attempted to improve the standard of naval gunnery, and required regular reports of the condition and preparedness of each ship. He commissioned the first steam warship and advocated the construction of more. Holding the office permitted him to make mistakes and learn from them, a process that might have been far more costly if he had not learned before becoming king that he should act only with the advice of his counselors. William spent much of his remaining time during his brother's reign in the House of Lords. 
He supported the Catholic Emancipation Bill against the opposition of his younger brother, Ernest Augustus, Duke of Cumberland. Describing the latter's position on the bill as infamous to Cumberland's outrage, George IV's health was increasingly bad. It was obvious by early 1830 that he was near death. The king took his leave of his younger brother at the end of May, stating, God's will be done. I have injured no man. It will all rest on you then. William's genuine affection for his older brother could not mask his rising anticipation that he would soon be king. When George IV died on June 26, 1830, without surviving legitimate issue, William succeeded him as King William IV. Age 64, he was the oldest person yet to assume the British throne. Unlike his extravagant brother, William was unassuming, discouraging pomp and ceremony. In contrast to George IV, who tended to spend most of his time in Windsor Castle, William was known, especially early in his reign, to walk, unaccompanied through London or Brighton. Until the reform crisis eroded his standing, he was very popular among the people who saw him as more approachable and down-to-earth than his brother. The king immediately proved himself a conscientious worker. The prime minister, Wellington, stated that he had done more business with King William in ten minutes than he had with George IV in his many days. Lord Brotham described him as an excellent man of business, asking enough questions to help him understand the matter, whereas George IV feared to ask questions lest he display his ignorance, and George III would ask too many and then not wait for a response. The king did his best to endear himself to the people. Charlotte Williams Wynne wrote shortly after his accession, Hitherto the king has been indefatigable in his efforts to make himself popular and do good-natured and amiable things in every possible instance. Emily Eden noted, He is an immense improvement on the last unforgiving animal, who died growling sulkily in his den at Windsor. This man at least wishes to make everybody happy, and everything he has done has been benevolent. William dismissed his brother's French chefs and German band, replacing them with English ones to public approval. He gave much of George IV's art collection to the nation and halved the royal stud. George had begun an extensive and expensive renovation of Buckingham Palace. William refused to reside there and twice tried to give the palace away, once to the army as a barracks, and once to Parliament after the Houses of Parliament burned down in 1834. His informality could be startling. When in residence at the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, King William used to send to the hotels for a list of their guests and invite anyone he knew to dinner, urging guests not to bother about clothes. The Queen does nothing but embroider flowers after dinner. Upon taking the throne, William did not forget his nine surviving illegitimate children, creating his eldest son, Earl of Munster, and granting the other children the precedence of a daughter or a younger son of a Marquess. Despite this, his children importuned for greater opportunities, disgusting elements of the press who reported that the impudence and rapacity of the Fitzjordans is unexampled. The relationship between William and his sons was punctuated by a series of savage and, for the king at least, painful quarrels over money and honors. His daughters, on the other hand, proved an ornament to his court as, they are all, you know, pretty and lively, and make society in a way that real princesses could not. At the time, the death of the monarch required fresh elections, and in the general election of 1830, Wellington's Tories lost ground to the Whigs under Lord Grey. 
though the Tories still had the largest number of seats. With the Tories bitterly divided, Wellington was defeated in the House of Commons in November, and Lord Grey formed a government. Grey pledged to reform the electoral system, which had seen few changes since the 15th century. The inequities in the system were great. For example, large towns such as Manchester and Birmingham elected no members, though they were part of the county constituencies, while small boroughs, known as rotten or pocket boroughs, such as Old Sarum with just seven voters, elected two members of parliament each. Often, the rotten boroughs were controlled by great aristocrats, whose nominees were invariably elected by the constituents, who were, most often, their tenants, especially since the secret ballot was not yet used in parliamentary elections. Landowners who controlled seats were even able to sell them to prospective candidates. When the first reform bill was defeated in the House of Commons in 1831, Gray's ministry urged William to dissolve Parliament, which would lead to a new general election. At first, William hesitated to exercise his prerogative to dissolve Parliament, because elections had just been held the year before, and the country was in a state of high excitement which might boil over into violence. He was, however, irritated by the conduct of the opposition, which announced its intention to move the passage of an address or resolution in the House of Lords against dissolution. Regarding the opposition's motion as an attack on his prerogative and at the urgent request of Lord Grey and his ministers, the king prepared to go in person to the House of Lords and prorogue Parliament. The monarch's arrival would stop all debate and prevent passage of the address. When initially told that his horses could not be ready at such short notice, William is supposed to have said, Then I will go in a hackney cab. Coach and horses were assembled quickly, and he immediately proceeded to Parliament, said the times of the scene before William's arrival. It is utterly impossible to describe the scene. The violent tones and gestures of noble lords astonished the spectators and affected the ladies who were present with visible alarm. Lord Londonderry brandished a whip, threatening to thrash the government's supporters, and was held back by four of his colleagues. William hastily put on the crown, entered the chamber, and dissolved Parliament. This forced new elections for the House of Commons, which yielded a great victory for the reformers. But although the Commons was clearly in favor of parliamentary reform, the Lords remained implacably opposed to it. The crisis saw a brief interlude for the celebration of the King's coronation on September 8, 1831. At first, William wished to dispense with the coronation entirely, feeling that his wearing the crown was proroguing Parliament answered any need. He was persuaded otherwise by traditionalists. He refused, however, to celebrate the coronation in the expensive way his brother had. The 1821 coronation had cost £240,000, of which £16,000 was merely to hire the jewels. At William's instructions, the Privy Council budgeted less than £30,000 for the coronation. When traditionalist Tories threatened to boycott what they called the half-crown nation, the king retorted that they should go ahead and that he anticipated greater convenience of room and less heat. After the rejection of the second reform bill by the House of Lords in October 1831, agitation for reform grew across the country. Demonstrations grew violent in so-called reform riots. In the face of popular excitement, the Gray Ministry refused to accept defeat and reintroduced the bill, despite the continued opposition of peers in the House of Lords. 
Frustrated by the Lord's obdurate attitude, Gray suggested that the king create a sufficient number of new peers to ensure the passage of the reform bill. The king objected, though he had the power to create an unlimited number of peers. He had already created 22 new peers in his coronation honors. William reluctantly agreed to the creation of the number of peers sufficient to secure the success of the bill. However, the king, citing the difficulties with a permanent expansion of the peerage, told Gray that the creations must be restricted as much as possible to the eldest sons and collateral heirs of existing peers so that the created peerages would eventually be absolved as subsidiary titles. This time, the lords did not reject the bill outright but began preparing to change its basic character through amendments. Gray and his fellow ministers decided to resign if the king did not agree to an immediate and large creation to force the bill through in its entirety. The king refused and accepted the resignations. The king attempted to restore the Duke of Wellington to office, but Wellington had insufficient support to form a ministry, and the king's popularity sank to an all-time low. Mud was slung at his carriage and he was publicly hissed. The king agreed to reappoint Gray's ministry and to create new peers if the House of Lords continued to pose difficulties. Concerned by the threat of the creations, most of the bill's opponents abstained and the 1832 Reform Act was passed. The mob blamed William's actions on the influence of his wife and brother and his popularity recovered. William distrusted foreigners, particularly anyone French, which he acknowledged as a prejudice. He also felt strongly that Britain should not interfere in the internal affairs of other nations, which brought him into conflict with the interventionalist Foreign Secretary Lord Palmerston. William supported Belgian independence and, after unacceptable Dutch and French candidates were put forward, favored Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, the widower of his niece Charlotte, as a candidate for the newly created Belgian throne. Though he had a reputation for tactlessness and buffoonery, William could be shrewd and diplomatic. He foresaw that the potential construction of a canal at Suez would make good relations with Egypt vital to Britain. Later in his reign, he flattered the American ambassador at a dinner by announcing that he regretted not being born a free, independent American. So much did he respect that nation which had given birth to George Washington, the greatest man that ever lived. By exercising his personal charm, William assisted in the repair of Anglo-American relations, which had been so deeply damaged during the reign of his father. Public perception in Germany was that Britain dictated Hanoverian policy. This was not the case. In 1832, Austrian Chancellor Clemens von Mecklenburg introduced laws that curbed fledgling liberal movements in Germany. Lord Palmerston opposed this and sought William's influence to cause the Hanoverian government to take the same position. The Hanoverian government instead agreed with Metternich, much to Palmerston's dismay, and William declined to intervene. The conflict between William and Palmerston over Hanover was renewed the following year, when Metternich called a conference of the German states to be held in Vienna, and Palmerston wanted Hanover to decline the invitation. Instead, William's brother Prince Adolphus, Viceroy of Hanover, accepted, backed fully by William. In 1833, William signed a new constitution for Hanover which empowered the middle class, gave limited power to the lower classes, and expanded the role of the parliament. The constitution would later be revoked by his brother and successor in Hanover, King Ernest Augustus. 
For the remainder of his reign, William interfered actively in politics only once, in 1834, when he became the last British sovereign to choose a prime minister contrary to the will of Parliament. In 1834, the minister was facing increasing unpopularity and Lord Grey retired. The Home Secretary, William Lamb, second Viscount Melbourne replaced him. Melbourne retained most cabinet members and his ministry retained an overwhelming majority in the House of Commons. Some members of the government, however, were anathema to the king, and increasingly left-wing policies concerned him. The previous year, Gray had already pushed through legislation reforming the Protestant Church of Ireland. The church collected tithes throughout Ireland, supported multiple bishoprics, and was wealthy. However, barely an eighth of the Irish population belonged to the Church of Ireland. In some parishes, there were no Church of Ireland members at all, but there was still a priest paid for by tithes collected from the local Catholics and Presbyterians, leading to charges that idle priests were living in luxury at the expense of Irish people, living at the level of substance. Gray's act had reduced the number of bishopics by half, abolished some of the sinecures, and overhauled the tithe system. Further measures to appropriate the surplus revenues of the Church of Ireland were mooted by the more radical members of the government, including Lord John Russell. The king had an especial dislike for Russell, calling him a dangerous little radical. In November 1834, the leader of the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Esquisher, Lord Althorpe, inherited a peerage, thus removing him from the Commons to the Lords. Melbourne had appointed a new Commons leader and a new Chancellor who, by long custom, must be drawn from the Commons, but the only candidate whom Melbourne felt suitable to replace Althorpe as Commons leader was Lord John Russell, whom William and many others found unacceptable due to his radical politics. William claimed that the ministry had been weakened beyond repair and used the removal of Lord Althorpe, who had previously indicated that he would retire from politics upon becoming a peer, as the pretext for the dismissal of the entire ministry. With Lord Melbourne gone, William chose to entrust power to a Tory, Robert Peel. Since Peel was then in Italy, the Duke of Wellington was provisionally appointed prime minister. When Peel returned and assumed leadership of the ministry for himself, he saw the impossibility of governing because of the Whig majority in the House of Commons. Consequently, Parliament was dissolved to force fresh elections. Although the Tories won more seats than in the previous election, they were still in the minority. Peel remained in office for a few months, but resigned after a series of parliamentary defeats. Melbourne was restored to the Prime Minister's office, remaining there for the rest of William's reign, and the King was forced to accept Russell as Commons leader. The King had a mixed relationship with Lord Melbourne. Melbourne's government mooted more ideas to introduce greater democracy, such as the de-evolution of the powers to the Legislative Council of Lower Canada, which greatly alarmed the King, who feared it would eventually lead to the loss of the colony. At first, the King bitterly opposed these proposals. William exclaimed to Archbishop Eckenshen, Lord Gosford, Governor-General-Designate of Canada, Mind what you are about in Canada. Mind me, my lord, the cabinet is not my cabinet. They had better take care, or by God I will have them impeached. When William's son, Augustus Fitzclarence, inquired of his father whether the king would be entertaining during Ascot Week, William gloomily replied, I cannot give any dinners without inviting the ministers and I would rather see the devil than any one of them in my house. 
Nevertheless, William approved the cabinet's recommendations for reform. Despite his disagreements with Melbourne, the king wrote warmly to congratulate the prime minister when he triumphed in the adultery case brought against him concerning Lady Caroline Norton. He had refused to permit Melbourne to resign when the case was first brought. The king and prime minister eventually found a modus vivendi, Melbourne applying tact and firmness when called for, while William realized that his first minister was far less radical in his politics than the king had feared. Both the king and queen were fond of their niece, Princess Victoria of Kent. Their attempts to forge a close relationship with the girl were frustrated by the conflict between the king and the princess's widowed mother, the Duchess of Kent. The king, however, angered at what he took to be disrespect from the duchess to his wife, took the opportunity at what proved to be his final birthday banquet, in August 1836, to settle the score. Speaking to those assembled at the banquet who included the duchess and princess, William expressed his hope that he would survive until the princess was 18, so that the duchess would never be regent. He said, I trust to God that my life may be spared for nine months longer, should I then have the satisfaction of leaving the exercise of the royal authority to the personal authority of that young lady, heiress presumptive to the crown, and not in the hands of a person now near me, who is surrounded by evil advisers and is herself incompetent to act with propriety in the situation in which she would be placed. The speech was so shocking that Victoria burst into tears while her mother sat in silence and was only with difficulty persuaded not to leave immediately after dinner the two left the next day. William's outburst undoubtedly contributed to Victoria's tempered view of him as a good old man, though eccentric and singular. William survived, though mortally ill, to the month after Victoria's coming of age. Poor old man, Victoria wrote as he was dying. I feel sorry for him. He was always personally kind to me. William was very much shaken and affected by the death of his eldest daughter, Sophia, Lady Delisle, and Dudley, in childbirth in April 1837. William and his eldest son, George, Earl of Munster, were estranged at the time, but William hoped that a letter of condolence from Munster signaled a reconciliation. His hopes were not fulfilled, and Munster, still thinking he had not been given sufficient money or patronage, remained bitter to the end. Queen Adelaide attended the dying William devotedly, not going to bed herself for more than 10 days. William died in the early hours of the morning of June 20, 1837, at Windsor Castle, where he was buried at St. George's Chapel. As William had no living legitimate issue, the crown of the United Kingdom passed to Princess Victoria, the only child of Prince Edward, Duke of Kent and Stratham, George III's fourth son. Under Salic law, a woman could not rule Hanover, and so the Hanoverian crown went to George III's fifth son, the Duke of Cumberland. William's death thus ended the personal union of Britain and Hanover, which had persisted since 1714. The main beneficiaries of his will were his eight surviving children by Mrs. Jordan. Although William is not the direct ancestor of the later monarchs of the United Kingdom, he has many notable descendants through his illegitimate family with Mrs. Jordan, including former Prime Minister David Cameron, TV presenter Adam Hart Davis, and author and statesman Duff Cooper. William IV had a short but eventful reign. In Britain, the reform crisis marked the ascendancy of the House of Commons and the corresponding decline of the House of Lords, and the King's unsuccessful attempt to remove the Melbourne Ministry indicated a reduction in the political influence of the Crown 
and of the king's influence over the electorate. During the reign of George III, the king could have dismissed one ministry, appointed another, dissolved parliament, and expected the electorate to vote in favor of the new administration. Such was the result of a dissolution in 1784 after the dismissal of the Fox North Coalition, and in 1807 after the dismissal of Lord Greenville. But when William dismissed the Melbourne ministry, the Tories under Sir Robert Peel failed to win the ensuing elections. The monarch's ability to influence the opinion of the electorate and therefore national policy had been reduced. None of William's successors has attempted to remove a government or to appoint another against the wishes of Parliament. William understood that as a constitutional monarch, he had no power to act against the opinion of Parliament. He said, I have my view of things, and I tell them to my ministers. If they do not adopt them, I cannot help it. I have done my duty. During William's reign, the British Parliament enacted major reforms, including the Factory Act of 1833, preventing child labor, the Slavery Abolition Act 1833, emancipating slaves in the colonies, and the Poor Law Amendment Act 1834, standardizing provision for the destitute. William attracted criticism both from reformers, who felt that reform did not go far enough, and from reactionaries, who felt that reform went too far. A modern interpretation sees him as failing to satisfy either political extreme by trying to find a compromise between two bitterly opposed factions, but in the process proving himself more capable as a constitutional monarch than many had supposed. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books behind the story today, while we answered some of the questions you have about one of your favorite classic authors. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us so you get all the new episodes. If you want to see exclusive behind-the-scenes of our show, join our Patreon. We would also love for you to drop us a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share our show with your friends. You can catch us on all the social medias at Bite at a Time Books. Also, be sure to check us on our website, www.biteatatimebooksbehindthestory.com. Our show is part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you would also like to hear a story by the author we are currently featuring, check out the Bite at a Time Books podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Right now we are reading Jane Eyre. Again, my name is Bree Carlisle, and I hope you come back next week when we answer more questions about one of your favorite classic authors.